Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This summer season, we are talking about the book Companions in Suffering, Comfort in Times of Loss and Loneliness by Wendy Alsup. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Elisa Jenks and Hardy Morris. And Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you know Elisa and Hardy? All right. So these two ladies are probably the two truth teller friends, two of my favorite truth teller friends in my life. And Elisa and I met, we used to live, oh, I don't know, 25 feet apart, something really close. Please, yeah. further than that. 25 <laughs> feet apart? Uh-huh. Yes. Houses in downtown, right? Yeah. We lived, you know, in Old Town, like it's, you know, we're snuggled in. And there was a house between us, but we became good friends just through meeting through the neighborhood and... um her telling me some truth, just kind of, I needed that in my life. And she's just been such a helpful and dear friend to me through the years. And then Hardy and I, we met in Elena Boone's Bible study. I don't even remember, like first Samuel, maybe something like that. Yeah, she was dating her now husband. And I just remember feeling connected to her. And so we got, I guess she also lived in Old Town. So we would do some things together through that. And we just celebrated her big birthday together. So it's just been some good years together. What was your big birthday, Hardy? Oh, 25. 25. We're all 25 here. Plus 15. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for bringing that up. Speaking of suffering, <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> oh, geez. Fun times. I thought you were the truth teller friend. <laughs> oh, burn. 25 plus 15. And just had to there you go. Wait a minute. It's algebra. <laughs> you break it down. Algebra. The it's ultimate fine. truth. Yeah. All right. Well, I love that. Let's get to know y'all a little bit more. I'm going to ask you our first things first question. We always start our podcast out with our first things first question. So I'm going to ask you the question. But before you answer it, give a little bio on yourself and then answer the question. And the question is, where is the first place you look when you've lost your keys, car keys in particular, and how long does it usually take you to find them? So Hardy, tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us about your car keys. So my name is Hardy Morris. I grew up here in Augusta and graduated from the University of Georgia in Spanish education. I moved to St. Louis after that and lived there for eight years and got a master's in theology from Covenant. Was a public school teacher for six years and kind of started to miss my family. So I moved back here, ran back into Joseph Morris. And in the past, how many years? Eight years, we have gotten married and had four children, six and under presently. So we're a little busy. I am a teacher in Columbia County. I teach middle school and high school Spanish right now at um, Columbia Virtual Academy, which is a new option that Columbia County offers. Hobbies. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) I go to work. I keep my family alive. I am actually, I am getting my doctorate right now in education. So maybe that's my hobby is being a student again. Mm -hmm. I thankfully don't have to know where my car keys are. They stay in my purse. Because I have the keyless entry on my car and my house has a code. So I don't need the key to get in my house or get in my car, which is a lifesaver. Great time Because to be they alive. are always in the bottom of my purse covered in diapers and food and all the things that I throw in my purse as a mom. Um, I probably lose my phone more than my keys. And, and I have the first found, place to look for that? I honestly have found my phone in the refrigerator oh before. My, oh my gosh. I, it is a true story. <laughs> it's it usually on a counter where I've set something down to grab something else, but I really have left it in the refrigerator before. Wow. I think you have plenty of reasons for that. <laughs> I think your brain might be involved with several other things. Uh, oh dear. What about you, Elisa? 
So I'm Elisa Jenks, and I grew up in Canton, Georgia. I also graduated from the University of Georgia and then uh, quickly moved to Augusta for our nursing program here. Stayed here after uh, meeting my husband, my now husband, Nathan, and we've been here since 2009 and have loved it. I'm now a nurse midwife, so I work at Augusta University, and we have three small children, four, two, and five months. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Okay, if I lose my car keys, I'm in trouble because it's attached to my wallet. And unfortunately, you'd think like a big item would be really easy to locate, and uh, I've lost it multiple times. So there's not only panic about where are my car keys, there's also where's my entire life that's in my wallet. Um, So the first place I look is where it should be. So, of course, that's not the issue. It's not there. And so (laughs) then I start running around. Or it wouldn't be lost. Or it wouldn't be lost. (laughs) But I still think, oh, maybe it's, you know, so I still try. But then I'm panicking and I'm asking Nathan if he's seen it. And I'm running around starting to dig my hands in every bag and panicking because it shouldn't be lost because it's a big wallet. So, yeah, I look in bags and then eventually I'll find it in my like random pumping bag or something somewhere it shouldn't be. Um, And I'm always thankful because I'm about to like block all my credit cards because I've lost my key. And so I need a little pinger, <laughs> the little tiles to like, you know, where you can ping your, yeah, your keys and your wallet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then you yeah. have to remember where that is. It's just a never ending yeah, step of the next thing yeah. I'm lost. Well, right. Because <laughs> my phone actually also goes in my wallet. So sometimes I am missing all three, which is a problem. Well, I will say when we lived in Old Town, obviously locked the car and hung up the keys every night by the door. But nowadays I leave the car keys in my car every night just hanging on the little gear shifter thingy (laughs) life in the country yes so yeah usually my car keys are hanging on the gear shifter right where i left them let's hope that none of these listeners want to steal your car because they know where to go listen if you want to steal my 20 year old car (laughs) you know forerunners please do (laughs) they they good cars I'm not going to say please do. That's taking it too far. I do need it to locomote around. Okay, so what you're telling us is, is you do not lose your keys very often because you don't take them out of your car. Correct. All right, well, I cannot say that I intentionally leave my keys in my car. Aaron, like you, uh, do not have that same freedom. I have accidentally left my keys in my car more times than I like to admit. But what happens to me is I have this purse that I don't like. I have not liked it for th- at least three years. But my problem is I also don't like to shop. So I'm kind of in this conundrum. So I keep keeping this purse. And what happens is it's big and I keep random things in it. And I will drop the keys in there and I can't find it. And also it has interior pockets. And so I'm always digging, like it's dark in those purses. It's so Mm. annoying. I I don't know why I have a big purse, except I can't go shopping to get a small one. So I'm digging my hand in there. I can't see. And I'm rooting around. It takes me forever. And one time it happened at a basketball game. And I swore I looked everywhere. I looked in bleachers. People were helping me. I went out to the car. I came back in. It was getting to be a real problem. And then I looked again. Oh, they had gone in a pocket. That's where they were. Where they were supposed to be. Yeah. Well, and it's just that annoying thing. I know that they're there. I think that they're there, but I just can't put my hands on them. And I was thinking about that and thinking about our chapters for today and wondering if that is sometimes not how we feel about God. You know, if we're honest, we know he's there. We know who he is. We know what his character is. We've maybe like Hardy gotten a master's in theology. We know who he is, but at times, especially when we're suffering, it's like we can't really put our hands on. Like we can't really grasp it and understand. And we feel like we are 
doubting. And last week, before we get to talking a little bit more about that doubting, last week, just as a reminder, if you listened in, we talked about chapters three and four in this book, Companions in Suffering. And we talked about what it is to share fellowship with Christ in our sufferings to receive his comfort, and then to be able to share that suffering and that comfort with one another. And we also talked about what it looks like that the that the Lord gives us words to put to this pleading for rescue when we just can't seem to survive. So we talked about what that looked like. And today we're talking about chapters five and six. The first one is help my unbelief. And the second one is ambiguous loss. So we're going to start with help my unbelief. And again, that's what I'm talking about. Like, what, what do you do when it feels like you, you know that God is who he says he is? but you just don't feel like you can take hold of it. And Wendy talks in this chapter about her own struggle with intellectual doubt in college, particularly regarding the scriptures. And then she talks about how she was gifted with a sure belief that to this day has made scriptures precious and trustworthy to her. But later in life, when she received her cancer diagnosis in the midst of all the other large losses in her life, it felt like she says as if the emotional chasm opened back up again and her cancer diagnosis just simply didn't compute to her. What she understood about God didn't compute with her diagnosis, what she understood about her own body, nothing in her family in history indicated she'd be vulnerable to cancer. That didn't compute with her diagnosis. So she began to question, what other confident beliefs do I hold that might turn out to be false? And she began to doubt. And doubt, sometimes I think we could say, is a hard thing to express in certain Christian circles. But in God's care for her and his care for all of his people and his care for us around the table, he has preserved in his word language for our doubts and what it looks like to bring them before him. So the psalm that Wendy references in this chapter is Psalm 73. I'd encourage you to hit the pause button, find it, pull it up, maybe read through it or have it in front of you as we talk because you'll get more out of it as you do. We're going to be referencing some of the things in it. And the worship leader Asaph penned Psalm 73 in order to give a corporate voice. This is meant to be used in corporate worship, um, personally as well, but also corporately, to the tension between what we believe it about God and how we feel in the midst of our struggles. And he starts it out by saying, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. And it's, again, that feeling like I just can't lay hold of what I know to be true. You're indeed good to Israel, but I'm falling away from that. And so I want us to talk about that a little bit more. Again, y'all have already read through the entirety of Psalm 73. What were some of the ways that Asaph used his words in that psalm that spoke to your own understanding of despair or doubt? And why was that? And Hardy, start us off. I think I have, you know, he, he's envious of the others because they haven't felt the pangs of death. Yeah. I, that, for some reason, that phrase, the pangs of death has felt real to me. Mm. Um, whether it's fearing the own death of my child or other things, but I think it's actually right before the twist in verse 13, it says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. There's that sense of this isn't right. This isn't fair, but it's the next verse for All the day long, I've been stricken, and I'm rebuked every morning. After the the tragedy at Covenant School in Nashville, you know, people lost their children. Um, The next morning, I woke up, and I was driving to work, and I immediately started weeping because I said, oh, my dear friends have to wake up this morning, and it's still true. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a nightmare. It's just still true. And something about that phrase, I'm rebuked every morning. Like you just, you wake up for the day and the pain and the despair and the doubt is still true. And it's still real every morning, all day long. And that 
feels very real to me in the depths of despair and doubt of Mm -hmm. those seasons in life. Every morning it rebukes you. The verse that kind of stuck out with me to me was um, verse three. And I have, I reread this in the new living translation. Sometimes I like to just, so if you're looking for theology stories here, it's, it's really just the flow of the words, not necessarily the meaning behind them. So the verse that I have is for, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And I think in the midst of some of my, um, deepest struggles and suffering that started even as a child, um, growing up in a single home, my mom uh, had five kids and my dad and she divorced when my, when she was pregnant with the fifth. And I would hear her basically be like Asaph, like, uh, how dare you? Like, why are the wicked prospering? Like, cause my dad who was unfaithful to my mom had a bigger house, uh, better money, uh, better cars, and we were suffering. So it kind of was, it, it kind of painted the picture for me early on, kind of what that looked like, um, his cry. And, I'd, and not necessarily in a good way, but certainly as an adult, I kind of stepped into my own suffering. Um, I had a really hard marriage. I mean, marriage is still hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But it was really difficult in our first year, even first several years of marriage. And we had been separated one time within our within the first year or so. And then the second time, I remember looking and I was a big like social media person, like Facebook and all that stuff. Um, and this was probably 2014 or 15. And I like saw these people that I'm not saying they're wicked and I'm not, I'm not, I think the Lord speaks to me through this and whether they're wicked or not, maybe they follow the Lord or not. But I just thought, oh my goodness, they're so proud of their marriages. They have these great things. Everything's so great. And I'm over here following the Lord and and I'm suffering. And so, but it's really, and as uh, Hardy talked about when he, right before he turns to seeing the Lord's goodness for him, even in that suffering, I just took on that, that view, that, that shape of why is everybody, ha- why do they have it so much better than me? Mm-hmm. But the Lord met me in that. And and so that's how I, and I know that's not really the question. The question is the doubting, but like for so long, when I look at them, I'm like, what am I doing here? Was I not supposed to marry this man? You know? So um, I guess I won't go further and talk about the part when you, you know, turn from the doubting, but that definitely, there was a lot of doubt there. Yeah. Cause we're coming back to that. Yes, we, we are. We, yeah. we do want to mm-hmm. get there, mm-hmm. but I, I just, Aaron already said at the beginning that y'all are her truth telling friends. Mm -hmm. And so you can tell that by what the truth that you're telling right now. And, you know, Hardy to acknowledge that that next morning that you just allowed that thought of, it just feels like each morning this is true. And that is just sad for a long time Mm -hmm. where sometimes you feel like you got to bounce out of that and think of the hope or the assurance of the Lord's commitment. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. And at least, you know, the struggle that your mom was expressing, or even that you heard growing up or that particular one to your, that you could say out loud, Lord, it really seems like I'm trying to follow you and I'm struggling. Asaph has a, a part in this Psalm that he's, he just expresses like, if I were to say that out loud, it felt like I would be doing you injustice in front of the congregation. And so how do y'all, can you relate to that dilemma? Like, obviously he did do it out loud because he penned, this this lament or this cry of doubt to be used publicly. It is okay to cry out to the Lord in our doubt. How do y'all reconcile that within your Christian community? I've always said I've been thankful for social media in the birth of our first child who's had a lot of things happen in his life because it's a quick and easy way to ask for prayer. And it can get out to so many people. I don't, I have no clue how to even start counting the amount of people that have prayed for my son or for my family in different moments in our life. But at the same time, that also means that everybody's watching how you process that event. 
and how you process whatever God's answer to those prayers might be. Um, And so I think with my son's first open heart surgery, day seven of his life, you know, you're asking everybody to pray and, oh, like there's a sigh of relief. Okay, the... The surgery went well. I can praise Jesus in front of the masses, right? And then fast forward 20 months, and there's another open heart surgery. And are we going to make it through this one? And we're asking for prayer again, but everybody's watching. And what am I going to say? And can I profess that God is good, even if the outcome is not what we hope? And then, okay, the surgery went well. We can praise the Lord because Joby went through the second surgery. But I think it was finally the third episode that we were publicly living before all the people, which was my son having a stroke right before he turned three, that left his right side paralyzed and he couldn't walk and he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat. And we didn't know what the next years of our life were going to look like. Thankfully, it's looked a lot better than we thought. But, um, you know, that week it happened. The doctor said he might talk again and he might walk again. And so here I am, I've asked for prayer for this child. So everybody knows what's happening. And this is our answer. The third episode was two tight, two TIAs and then, you know, the full blown stroke. And so I remember thinking, I, I just, I don't, I wish I wouldn't have, I wish I wouldn't have asked for prayer because now I have to, I feel like I have to say something in front of all these people or, or have, you know, God's answer wasn't what we wanted to face, uh, in the first two episodes, really the pain would have been hours to hold, like if Joby didn't make it through those surgeries. And now this third new event in his life, the pain was going to be his. He was going to have to live as a mm-hmm. handicapped person. He was going to have to live being different um, and watching your baby suffer. Um, and so I think I, yeah, I did not know what to say because I did not have the faith in those moments to really believe all that I've said I believed about God in those moments and thinking that you don't know if you're going to say the right thing. And then, so you end up not saying anything at all. And so I don't, I forget which chapter she said that going through suffering changed her from an extrovert to an introvert. And that Mm. is very, very true about myself. And I see a, a shift in personality um, of not wanting to, being afraid to be in groups or be with people because you don't know if you're going to say the right thing or wrong thing, or if they're going to say the right thing, wrong thing, and all of a sudden not trusting yourself or not trusting your faith, which you never should have trusted to begin with, right? Our trust was supposed to be in Jesus and Him holding us and carrying us, but struggling to honor God with my words in front of the onlooking world, and I couldn't because I knew the thoughts going through my head, and those were of disbelief and Mm. doubt and pain and anger. And in in her book, she said, I didn't want to betray God or those that I love by acknowledging how vain, empty, and meaningless my belief in God seemed at certain moments. And I think I resonate with that. And not just at certain moments, it felt like all the moments. It was not just certain moments that I didn't think, (laughs) you know, I was feeling in all the moments that my faith is vain and empty and meaningless. I, I can't pray. I can't talk to God. I, it's too, it's too fresh. It's too, too much right now. And, you know, in certain friends, you say that too, right? The friends at this table, I would have said all those words too, (laughs) but not being sure, not being sure that the onlooking world is going to hear you when you finally get to the point you've got to get to eventually makes you afraid to say the doubts in the meantime, right? So if I express, we should be expressing our doubts and fears. That's honest. That's what scripture Mm -hmm. does. But because we think, well, 
what if they don't see me two months from now when I'm finally able to breathe again? Did I dishonor the Lord? So that pressure of, and is it really the Lord I'm worried about or is it just me? Well, as you were right. saying that, I was thinking, yeah, which, what do I feel more pressure right. for? Is it you will think that I'm not all I've said that I am as far as a believer or do I really think I'm going to tarnish right. God's name? Right. And there's a difference even in how you express your doubts of, of which you are doing. And I, I don't think God's threatened by mm, our doubts no. in that mm-hmm. sense. But even in how you express them, there's one that just expresses the what's being expressed here, the legitimate brokenness and confusion and the waiting on the Lord. Like it's a turning to the Lord to express your thoughts. And the other is just a complete turning away, different different sort of thing. Yeah, I think I think my husband is better at in those hard moments, still, still having f- faith and going to the right sources. I just, my default is just to shut down. Well, I, just, I think about the Holy Spirit and how one of the ways that He ministers to us is to pray for us with groans that words cannot express. And I think about just one little way of of seeing that in y'all's life is just your mother-in-law was involved in Bible study when a lot of this was going on and she was teaching on something. I don't remember what it was exactly, but she just used the illustration where everybody had their hands on Joby and she just was saying that sometimes if you're the mama or even if you're the grandmama or you just can't pray, like you would like to pray and you just can't, but that people who love you and come alongside with you pray in that moment, like they have that ability to do that for you. And that's okay. And I just think that's a tangible example of the Holy Spirit. You know, when our faith, quote unquote, our faith again, fails, it's the Holy Spirit that sustains that in us. And sometimes we can't even express it. Sometimes other people have to express it for us. And we need people in our life who don't get freaked out by the fact that we can't do it or by the fact that we feel like we, we want to claim that and want to know that and just can't get there and will come alongside us in that and not. In seminary, I went through, you know, a crisis of faith and doubt, and I was, like, freaking out about it, falling apart. Like, I can't believe in Jesus, and we've got to fix this. And all my professors like, yeah, that's fine. Let's talk through it. And my mom saying, like, yeah, you don't have faith, but I have faith for you right mm-hmm. now, baby. You just, you, you sit tight and wait for God to show back up, and I'll have faith for you. I think that's just such a tapestry of, like, the body. Like, we have that we're not surprised when things don't go right we're not surprised when we fall short on faith like of course this world is we've been taking it on the chin i think i've seen uh, multiple situations again with my mom where she's you know professing to be a christian and, and she she is but just cursing god because of her situation which you know the son of man didn't have a place to lay his head it's okay that we were six people living in a two-bedroom trailer and no dad, you know. But I don't know how the Lord blessed me with that perspective, but he did. As my mom, like I watched her suffer and try to figure out how to feed these kids, get them to things, do hobbies, things that all cost money. So again, going into my own struggles, even for example, I was actually, we were, my husband and I were infertile. Unex- we had unexplained infertility for five-ish years. Um, One of those years was a year we were separated, so that didn't really count. But um, we got to the point where it was either we're going to adopt or we won't have any children, um, but we probably weren't going to have, if we were going to maybe adopt an embryo, we didn't really know. And somehow through through God's uh, sweet gesture, we, we became pregnant spontaneously. But I look back at that and I still will say God was still good even if we didn't get pregnant. 
And I think that's really hard. I think because of the suffering in my marriage too, where I've seen us be separated on the brink of divorce and we could have gotten a divorce. God could have released me from my marriage and he still would have been good in that, but it's taken a long time to get through that. And I think that's really hard to to talk to our community about is even though we will profess and say things don't have to go our way, like look at Job and look at all these these characters of the Bible. But I think in our community, sometimes it's, it's, you can say it's true and not believe it's true. And so I think through, through the suffering of the journey of infertility and the journey of separation and having a hard marriage, I was able to come out of it and still, even in the midst of the struggle, say there is joy on the other side of this. But I think that's hard. I think that's hard to live out with our community. And I think also what's also true is in um, the non-Christian community who we live with and we love and is part of my community as well. If you say something that is in anger toward God, which I think God welcomes, I think that he wants to hear our anger. He wants to hear how sad we are, or he wants to hear our grief. Like he wants to to be the one to bear that with us and to, to be the one where we put that at his feet. And I think so often in even Christian community or secular community, we're afraid to do that. We're afraid to be honest. We tell our kids they can't scream, they can't cry get up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, generally speaking, I was kind of talked to that way. You're like, you're fine. Get up. You, everything's fine. Like, no, you don't need to scream. You don't need to be upset. It's just a cookie. It's just your fire truck pajamas. You can take it off. It's fine. And the reality is, is like, they're sad and they're upset. And like, God wants to hear that too. And he comforts us in that. And I think that's hard. I think that's hard to relay in society, in the mm-hmm. Christian community and the secular community, is that it's okay to suffer and be mad about it and be sad about it. But what do we do with that? And that's, I mean, that's where I see, we don't really do anything. We go to God. And, but yeah, I think that's where it can be troublesome to voice your, like to voice your frustrations in our communities. Um, Because in the secular world, they're like, well, what is, what are you saying about God? Just like Asaph talks about, Mm -hmm. like he might be betraying God by saying that, but, but he's not, I believe based on scripture, he's not, he's honoring God and saying, I'm hurt and I'm sad and I'm struggling. Help me and help me in my unbelief. So yeah, I think, in both the Christian community and the secular community. And I do think too, when I've been honest in some of my sufferings and these girls right here have literally walked alongside me with a few others in, in some of the most difficult things of my life, marriage particularly. And it was, I kept it kind of quiet for the first year. And after that, it was like, I'm tired of being quiet about it. And I would just sit on Aaron's porch and she, you know, I'm married, but single at the time. And she's just taking me in and I'm so mad. And even in their madness and frustration, they want to make it better and they want to fix it, but it's also, it's a part of my story and it's, and there's God's goodness in it, but it's hard because also everyone's frustrated by whatever's going on too. Like mm-hmm. whether it's my fault or his fault or our fault, of course it's both of our faults. I think people also, and not you and Aaron necessarily, but there's other people in our community that will judge too because we're Christians and we're supposed to have everything together and you're not supposed to be separated and you're supposed to stay married. And um, so I think that's hard too, to be honest, because truth is hard. Truth is really hard. But the the best relationships I've had is when we've been vulnerable with one another and said, like, this is really hard. Like, I might get a divorce. And for these women to, like, wrap their arms around me and say, we still love you. We still love your husband. But I do think in a general sense, that's why it becomes hard. And what Asaph talks about is that, you know, I'm going to betray God if I say the truth. No, I think you're going to honor him. Well, I think two words that you used throughout what you were saying is you talked about your mom's it felt like she wanted to curse and then there's the help. Right. And there is a, um, a difference in 
just as I think about Job and his friends and his wife, of course, was like, curse God and die. Mm-hmm. And his friends wanted to justify God by showing that Job was guilty. They didn't have a concept of the fact that God in his justice could allow what was going on in Job's life, not at the fault of Job. And it's she talks about this later in her book, and we'll get to that. But there's a lot of chapters of Job wrestling that idea out before God really speaks to him. And God does welcome that but it's job speaking to the lord presenting his case before the lord whereas curse god and die is turn away from god do not seek him do not address him throw that out and just die there is nothing else and so there is a really big difference between coming to god and saying in all of this help and i just absolutely turn away and if we don't know how to do that we are way more tempted if we're not encouraged as friends to be able to put voice to those struggles and those things that are hard and we're not allowed to take those to the lord with the support of people around us then we do tend to want to just curse god and die because we just can't we can't come close to him in the, in in a happy in a happy way and it seems like the other is the only option so how important to be able to allow our friends to have to give voice to things that are struggle that where we struggle, and you, you alluded to this some, Elisa, because you could be hearing your story and think, you know, in the midst of all of that, how do you come out of that saying the Lord is good? And in the Psalm, He's not afraid to say the things that He feels, and, and primarily that theme is how do the wicked prosper? And and I've done everything right, and I'm struggling. That's just unjust. It cannot be right. It cannot be fair. But there's a pivot point that you kind of alluded to, Hardy, uh, around verse 18, where that switches for him that he understands something that changes his overall perspective. And that's what happens when you come into the sanctuary of God. Have you all had an experience similar to what he's experienced in that Psalm where you has changed your perspective and how would you describe it? You know, the verse right before it stuck out to me this time around. I know I've read this Psalm many times, but it says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And so trying to understand suffering and trying to understand injustice in the world is hopeless. Like, you're, mm-hmm. you're, it's never going to make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so trying to understand it is hopeless and wearisome until I entered God's sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Until you encounter the one true God who loves you, who made you, it doesn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make sense while being held by one who loves you and is going to wipe away every tear from your eye and bottles up your tears in a jar. Mm. I was thinking how in this situation, in this psalm, like he's he's mad at the injustice in the world. And so when he enters the sanctuary of God, the view that he gets is, oh, all these people are going to get their judgment and their doom. All these people that have wronged me and wronged God's people are going to be taken care of, literally, by God's judgment. And that's nice and good if that's what you're wrestling with. But like that doesn't help me process parts of my story. But that doesn't, <laughs> that still doesn't take away the hard things in our life and in our family. And so the situation is different, but the solution is the same. That it's, it's still me entering into God's presence for God to, to show me whatever it is true that I do need to believe, right? So me picturing all of these people getting judged and taken care of doesn't help me with, you know, the Joby trauma or whatever the next trauma is. Um, but it's that it's entering into God's presence that will, mm-hmm. however God may see fit to do that. Um, I was thinking about the Hebrews passage where it says with boldness, enter into his sanctuary. Um, you know, we know that in theory, 
um, we have the ability to approach God's throne, right? Because of Jesus, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Like we have access to God's presence and in scripture, the writer of Hebrews says we have boldness to do it. But I think what I've learned in my own journey of doubt and despair is I don't, I literally don't have the boldness to do that. Like I'm coming, crawling and kicking and mm-hmm. can I even like walk through the door with my own merit and effort. But in those moments when God is kind enough to give me enough energy to enter his presence, to finally open my Bible, to finally go to church, to finally turn on a worship song, to finally do, you know, whatever it may be to enter into God's presence, um, he does show up when I finally give in and open my heart to his word or his people or, you know, whatever that may be. Um, I liked her little, uh, you know, we have out of focus glasses that are distorting our view of life. And so when we enter into God's presence, he, he gives us the correct vision. Mm-hmm. And that is different every time we do it, right? Because we have different mm-hmm. things that we're believing that aren't true that need to be corrected, whatever that may be. Well, I'm thinking as you're saying that as he goes into God's sanctuary and you know, you're trying to relate where he ends up in saying he understands the destiny of the wicked. And prior to that, he's talking about all in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain have I washed my hands. Basically, in vain I have been righteous. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point? My life has fallen apart. But when you enter into the sanctuary of God, you recognize my righteousness isn't so that my life will be held together in that way. It is so that I get to be in the presence of God. But when you enter into the sanctuary, even the psalmist would have known he didn't go into the sanctuary based off of the merit of his own righteousness. He had to go through offering. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. He had to go by the priest offering and offering for him. All of the different things that the Lord had set up in the Old Testament in order to enter his presence, which were pointing to Christ, which is the wicked, me, come into the sanctuary simply by the grace of Christ. And when we come into that place, we do see God's judgment and we recognize that God's judgment does exist in the world. He's not just turned a blind eye to all of the things that are broken and hurting. And yet his grace is moving in that and covering those things and bringing his righteousness to all of those broken places. And so I think when you enter into that place and you see God in that way, you, you can't maybe make your logical sense of it, but you have a real sense of I am in the presence of God and there is something there that overcomes all of these other other things and gives me just a different perspective. And it, you know, I think it changes, like you're saying, in, in each different situation, mm-hmm. the Lord does reveal something about himself that we didn't understand as clearly uh, before we came to him in the midst of our, our sufferings. I like the way that you said that. Yeah. I also, it's hard not to mimic each other or echo each other rather, but I do see that the psalmist talks about the wicked a lot in the beginning, just how, why do they get to prosper? You know, they're not practicing your ways, all these things. And in the end, he turns around and he said, and then I realized my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside and I was so foolish and ignorant. And this is an LT version. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you and you hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel, leading me to glorious destiny and so on. Um, I realized kind of in the midst of my own suffering and looking around at the world around me that none of it had to do with them and none of it had to do with my husband who I was, was my enemy. I mean, we were separated, so we were clearly not friends. Um, but that my story had nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the people around me, nothing to do with the women that were becoming pregnant when I was infertile, nothing to do with my dad who, you know, was doing better than my mom and the five kids that she had. Like 
none of it had to do in the end. I can look back and even now in the midst of any suffering experience now, which I think is part of our story um, and will continue to be, is that all of that suffering was it was not about how good these people were doing and all these things, but it was really about what is my heart? What is what is addressing my heart? And so I feel like God uh, used the situations that were really hard and and looking around and seeing other people's really good situations to say, stop looking at them and look at me. Um, so just like entering into the sanctuary and being with him and experiencing that joy. Because um, I think for so long, you look at other people to fix the situation. You look at other people or maybe my husband to fix our marriage. And in the end, it has it has nothing to do with him and everything to do with me. And so I think or I, I believe that all these journeys and the suffering are not about the actual suffering. What is the word I'm looking for? Like not the actual problem, not the actual issue. But in the end, it's about my healing and my growth. And so, yeah, I, that's kind of what I took from, you know, 73, 18 through 28. Um, in the end, it's for for my own goodness to grow. And I expect, I, I, I was telling maybe Hardy a little earlier, and I met with a friend this morning um, when we were talking, but I see the moments where we suffer as, like I said, like part of God's goodness, part, part of his grace, and part of um, my story in sanctifying me and edifying me, as Wendy talks about in the book too, in that chapter. But in the moments where it's so good and so joyous and so sweet, I hold onto those moments and I not in fear, but in anxiously awaiting the joy that comes at the end. I am preparing for the next valley, but not in a negative way in like a very good. um, It's not about the wicked thing that comes from it or the terrible suffering that comes from it. But I know that when the Lord brings it for my own growth and sanctification, like there will be joy on the other side. And that's incredibly difficult um, if you let your imagination t- take off, uh, like losing a child or um, getting a divorce or, you know, like I- I'm not thinking about the details of those things, but knowing that the Lord has plans for me, even in the next uh, valley. Yeah, I think the way that Psalm ends, that he's praising the Lord, saying, um, I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I mean, that's a miracle when you read uh-huh. the beginning of Psalm 73. And it, it does beg the question, like, how did he get there? And so just to tell a little bit about my change of perspective, it's funny just hearing your timeline, Elisa. I think I've never maybe done the math on this. But hearing you say, like, you're kind of at a fever pitch in 2014 and just how the Lord used your truth-telling probably right around the, and maybe it was end of 2013, beginning of 2014, to help bring about a major shift of perspective in my life. Do you remember my favorite thing I like to quote, my Asaph moment? Oh, yeah. It's my it's my lot in life. It's my lot in life. It's my lot in life to mm-hmm. be miserable. It's my lot in life. Like, God has smitten me. Like, I mean, who was I? I don't know. It was mm-hmm. a whole, it was a mess. But I think, Elisa, I, I, t- I quote you saying that you said to me, do you even know who Jesus is? Did you say that to me exactly? I probably said something okay. like that. I remember you saying that she said, do you know you can have healing this side of heaven? Uh-huh. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's not true. This is my life. This is my life. Like, I doubled life. down. Yeah. I doubled down. And so I think, obviously, that moment was not like, oh, well, now I'm free. Like, oh, Elisa right. said this thing to me, and now I'm free, and I can go, just jump to the end of the psalm. Obviously, it's not that linear, linear. But it was that moment of God using the body. I think that's kind of what Wendy's talking about in the, in the book, is that God has given this the community 
the body of Christ. I think sometimes we think of that as just like this church word that we surf around or whatever, but it really is like the living, breathing body of Christ. The spirit was within us. So he uses these things that to minister us, we can minister truth to one another. His spirit is blowing life into us. So I think that was just a moment where it just started to turn the ship for me. I went from this is my lot in life, the beginning of Psalm 73, through a lot of long and tumultuous path to the end where it's like, it is my joy to tell of the good works the Lord has done, that I can name His Him as my refuge, as trustworthy and good to me without hesitation. And it's a miracle. And I think part of what you were talking about, Hardy, how when y'all were t- talking about the wickedness, and Amber, you touched on this too, that the first step is like, if we're named as a child of God, like we are allowed His to be in His presence. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think we can't overlook that. Like we know the peace of his presence and we can be in his sanctuary because he's given us his righteousness. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you were uh, mm-hmm. getting at earlier. And that's a gift. And then one way my Greek professor would always talk about how like you, there's the evil, like in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. Like we were delivered from the evil within us. That's kind of what we're talking about when we have Christ's righteousness but also the evil without us. That's what you were getting at. I think Hardy is like, there's just some evil that's not necessarily like the wicked people or just brokenness. Yeah. Just brokenness, just sin and death, you know? And I think that it is, that is why Jesus came and gave his life for us so that we could know freedom from sin and death and that we can offer our lament and our confession to him without shame and, and know the promise of deliverance. Maybe not even, uh, Lisa, you were kind of hitting on this too, and that we might not know that deliverance, this side of heaven, but we could still name God as good. And that is an amazing um, gift from the Lord. I'm going to move us along a little quickly because we're getting um, short on time, but I don't want to end without covering this chapter. We're just going to condense it slightly because she talks about in the ne- next chapter, ambiguous loss. And I thought this was such a helpful term because what she's drawing out is that ambiguous loss is a loss that happens that our culture doesn't necessarily recognize. If someone dies, we recognize that we have a funeral, we bury them. We do several ceremonial concrete things in order to mark that loss. But a lot of us experience loss that isn't concrete. Maybe it's the loss of a friendship or it's the loss of a job or you move to a new town and it's the loss of memories or the places that you've lived and those sorts of things. We feel those losses in lots of different ways and yet we don't necessarily mark them. People don't necessarily know that they go on and we're not even necessarily sure that they count as losses Mm -hmm. and yet we feel them. And that's why they're called ambiguous loss. And so she just, she marks, she makes note in her book of just a research around that idea and how much hardship, how much suffering that really does cause. So I want us to just talk about that a little bit. And we're going to combine two of our questions together. I I want you to tell me or tell our listeners a little bit about what ambiguous loss has looked in your life, look like in your life, and then speak to God's supply. I, okay, so I know I keep talking about my marriage. That was probably high point of suffering, or low, low point, low point <laughs> suffering. Um, and I was meeting with Julie Phillips, um, and I think we had already separated once, and it was four months, and it was a wasted separation. Like, we were physically separated, but emotionally very much enmeshed and still communicating a lot. I was still grasping, uh, trying to have control over him and fix him, not really looking at myself to work on myself. Um, and the second separation was much longer close. I think it was nine months, but at the beginning of it, Julie said, don't waste a good separation. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, 
what do you mean? And I realized that I was trying so hard to jump to the end, to jump to the healing at the end, to not, to not have to do the hard stuff, to just, just get to the end. Um, give me the good, like, give me whatever's good. And like, let's, let's be, let's do this. And so that is not what happened the second time. We were just trying to not do the daily healing and walk that I think we see here. And so, um, so that next separation, we took time daily and I was focusing on the Lord day by day, not on Nathan, not on the end goal, because truly like, I mean, we thought, we, I very well, I mean, I thought we were probably going to get a divorce. Like we separated bank accounts. Like we were very much, I mean, we were still married, but we were on the path. And so I think that's how I relate to it, to, to my daily manna, I guess you could say, is like not to surpass, not to jump to the promised land. Because one, you're not going to get there. You're not going to experience God's um, sanctification and healing by just trying to jump there. He, he's, I know it seems crazy, but he's, he's laying that suffering before you so that you take him up daily. And so I got to experience that for the first time, really in that second separation, it, it changed, it changed who I am. And it really, it made me put in perspective what needing daily bread looks like. And cause that first time I just tried to take it all up and jump to the other side. Yeah. I think, um, when I was reading the chapter, I was like, well, you know, her literal ambiguous loss is like picturing someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Like they're there, they're in your home, they're your husband, but their mind is not there and they're not who you thought, you know, they'd be at this point in your life and all of the grief um, that comes along that with that. And that is very real. And people we know and love are walking through that. But it was helpful for me to picture, you know, what in my life does that look like? And really, I feel like I just kept thinking about broken relationships, whether that's with um, old friends or whether it's with family members, because technically those relationships are still present. We're still related. We're still family or we're, we're still friends and acquaintances. We still are literally present in the same places, in the same rooms. But there's an absence of meaningful relationship and there's an absence of the life and the love and the intimacy and affection that maybe used to be there or that could be there. Um, And so I just kind of had, I feel like my mind was filled with just those relationships. That feels like my ambiguous loss of when I'm present with those people, I feel the sense of absence. Mm -hmm. I feel what's not right Mm -hmm. Um, and what what could be or what should be or what I think could or should. Um, And so, you know, her phrase was she felt exiled from the life she had known and the person she had married. You know, it might be your husband. It might be your brother or sister might be your parents might be your kid you know you have adult children like whatever the you know this person or this relationship and how it used to be um is no more um and sometimes that's our fault sometimes that's their fault sometimes it's both of our faults usually um or it's just it is just life because we live in a broken world um and so just that sense of loss and mourning what could be or what should be um, I felt was helpful about this chapter, kind of putting words to that. And so mm-hmm. when it gets to Joshua and Caleb, you know, they're wandering around in the desert. God promised them this land of milk and honey and um, this amazing future. And we're promised our land, right? We're bound for the promised land, the even better one. Um, but it just can't get here fast enough. Like, can we just hurry and fix all these relationships and get there? Or can we, you know, hurry and <laughs> see all these things? Um but either our sin or our idolatry, our grumbling and our complaining keeps us in the desert for a little bit longer, 
or, you know, like Caleb and Joshua, someone else is grumbling and mm-hmm. complaining or someone else's sin and idolatry and not trusting Jesus keeps us in the desert with that, those, you know, those broken relationships and, um, just that Jesus is, you know, our manna. And she goes into that. It was interesting. And maybe I'm, <laughs> I don't think it's disagreeing. I, I, I got a, a mental picture in my brain as I was pondering Jesus being the manna, he's our bread of life. We know that. We see that scripture in the New Testament too. We're supposed to feed on him daily, not too much, not too little. I appreciated her explaining all those things. You know, if you try to hoard it, it's all going to go rotten. But if you don't get enough for the day, you're out of luck. Out of luck. Um, just that access to him. But I was thinking also, Jesus told the disciples and the people that he saw after he was resurrected, um, it's actually good that I leave you again because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the Holy Spirit is going to be better for you than me staying here, which is hard for us to figure out. But um, I guess in Sunday school we were talking through, you know, the Easter story, all the things before, during, and after. And um, people literally saw Jesus. And they talked to Jesus and they walked with Jesus and they didn't see him for who he was until he revealed himself, right? So you have Mary who's like, well, Jesus isn't here. And Jesus is literally a person talking to him saying, hey, where is he? What happened? And she doesn't know until, you know, Jesus says her name. But I would think it's really the Holy Spirit, you know, opening her eyes to who she's been talking to or the men on the road to Emmaus. They were walking with Jesus for what we assume are hours. He's explaining all of scripture. They still don't know it's him until they get to the point where he breaks the bread in front of them. And in my mind, in my mind, I picture that that's when the Holy Spirit finally moved in and opened their eyes to see Jesus for who he was. Hardy, I like how you were talking about Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the guys on the way to Emmaus, and it reminded me of one of my uh, favorite verses in Job 42.5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times when we get to the other side of our suffering, we can look back and say like, Lord, I know you in a bigger way now. I trust you in a bigger way. And that is a gift, even though like nobody wanted to walk through that hard and briary path. It's like, thank you, Lord, for delivering me. Thank you for ushering me through this, for the body of believers around me, carrying me. I think we talked about this earlier, how sometimes other people's faith is carrying us, their prayers are carrying us through when our faith is lacking. So that is a gift. Elise and Hardy, thank you both again for joining us today. It was really fun to sit around this table and talk with you both. And listeners, we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our fourth episode in the summer series. You can take us to the pool or maybe out with you when you go mow the lawn if you are that brave and bold. Priscilla Brandon and Rachel Atwell will be joining us to talk about chapters seven and eight in our summer read, Companions in Suffering. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees It is the Lord who rises With healing in His wings When comforts are declining He grants the soul again A season of pure shining To cheer it after the rain 